0: Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Curland. I'm the author of Clicker Training for Your Horse and other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And today we have a wonderful guest with us. We're joined by Susan Kane. Susan is the founder of Unbridled Thoroughbreds. She is a passionate and very devoted advocate for really all horses, but in particular Thoroughbreds. And Susan, I want to read a quote that you have on your homepage because it just resonates so, so much with me. Where you say, I believe that the greatest chance rescued horses have to find safety is to share the real stories of their plight and to inspire new choices with moral consideration for the sentience of the horse. And I love that because I believe so deeply in the intelligence of our horses and that they are sentient beings. So that we're making these choices with moral consideration for the sentience of the horse being number one in each and every decision. Which is why when we met the other day, we just spent the day in nonstop conversation because I think we're so much on the same page when it comes to our devotion for horses. So could you just start by sharing a little bit what is going on in the thoroughbred racing industry? Because I don't think people... Not everyone is necessarily going to be aware of what happens with thoroughbred racehorses. Sure,
1: absolutely. And thank you so much, Dominique and Alexandra, for having me on the podcast. It's really a a joy to spend this time with you and always a privilege to be a voice for horses and to speak up for thoroughbreds because, you know, in the glamour and the athletic prowess that they present to the, gen- the public um, as racehorses, often who they are as horses, as equine, is really lost in the equation. Um, so I have spent the whole of my life with thoroughbreds specifically. Um, I grew up on a farm, and as a youngster, my show horses were all off-the-track thoroughbreds, and eventually my parents <coughs> got into breeding thoroughbreds for the New York state program. So I'm intimately familiar with thoroughbreds through all facets of their life cycle and through myriad disciplines that they're capable of participating in. And what the general public sees at Saratoga, where we have over a million people pass through the turnstiles, are really celebrated equine athletes. But the people don't get to see the horses behind the scenes. They don't get to put their hands on them, to really look up close and deeply into their eyes or observe them, you know, in that environment when they're not in a post parade or in a race or crossing the finish line. And it's very, it it distances people from what I refer to as the hooness of those horses, which is really you know, their inherent value and true worth as fellow sentient beings, as living, breathing beings whom a force of life goes through. It gets very convoluted in the thoroughbred world because the public hears the industry saying how much we love our athletes. We love these horses like their children. And having come out of that industry, and, and let me preface it with I have a lot of friends who are still involved in the industry, who are making proactive changes in the best interest of their horses. But there's still a lot of activity that goes on as a standard course of business with thoroughbreds that in my opinion is very anti-horse friendly, beginning with starting horses in training when they're a year and a half old, racing them at the age of two, which is the equivalent you know, of a six-year-old child to knowingly drugging horses who have physical infirmities that really need time to heal them not drugs to heal them and that results in life-threatening injuries, lifelong injuries that prohibit a horse from going into a second career or catastrophic injury where they're just they die on the racetrack. You know there are thousands of horses that that break down each year on the racetrack and they're either euthanized or they are lamed and maimed to the point where they're not able to participate in second careers and that puts them at high risk of slaughter. So the horses are are valued and they're prized in the thoroughbred world as long as they have the potential to earn money, whether that's racing or in the breeding shed. And beyond that, even though we hear a lot about aftercare, the amount of aftercare dollars that are attributed to thoroughbreds in need from the industry is minuscule to the reality of what it takes to see that horse through its natural lifespan of 30 plus years. So it's estimated currently that about 10 to 12,000 thoroughbreds annually shipped to slaughter in Canada and Mexico. I have been informed directly by contracted kill buyers that that number is closer to 20,000. And I lean more towards the 20,000 in that if you try to find thoroughbreds that should be alive from a given year, it's hard to find older horses and it's hard to find the majority of that year's full crop alive and well. And because the Jockey Club does track these horses and have the data, we should be able to easily know where thoroughbreds are at any given time in their life. But unfortunately, there is no mandatory death reporting by the jockey club, which is something I think would help start to bring this horrific plight of thoroughbreds going to slaughter um, into creating a, a, a brainstorming for better outcomes for these horses.
0: Wow. You know, because thoroughbreds, thoroughbreds are so near and dear to me in my heart because my senior horse, Peregrine, who introduced me to clicker training and was just, he's just part of my being, was a thoroughbred. And I know, I know what amazing horses they are. And to think of so many of these horses, going to slaughter, just it's heartbreaking. And of course it's not just thoroughbreds but it's it's across all the breeds and it's in the Mustangs and it's it's everywhere where we're not where we're seeing horses as livestock and not as sentient beings. And we've just finished this series of interviews with Anya Baron the classical dressage trainer and she talked about talked about two things, well many things, but she talked about the circus trainers that she has worked with for over 30 years and the horses that she trains for the circus they're in training with her for six years and then they spend their life working at the circus and when they're done they retire they retire. Now if a circus can do that for their horses, then the people who are making so much money off these thoroughbreds should be able to do something for these horses. It just It's just heartbreaking when you think of the amount of money that is funneled through the thoroughbred industry. What were you sharing with me the other day in terms of what was bet at was it just Saratoga? So so Saratoga, because not everyone knows Saratoga has one of the oldest and it's a uh really healthy racetrack. Saratoga Spa has been the because it had mineral waters, it was a, a resort community and it's about what an hour or so north of where we are. And Every year, it has a month-long. They've now extended it racing series uh, season, that continues to be very popular, very well attended in this modern age where other tracks are closing, but not Saratoga. So they had. You you told me the amount that was bet this year. It was, what was it, seven hundred. Million. No. It was,
1: yes, it was 705 million. And Saratoga is one of the premier race meets in this country. It's about 150 years old. And it's a month to six weeks of racing, give or take a few days. And this year, racing was cut back to five days per week. And the handle, which is the amount of money that's wagered on the horses, was 705 million dollars. And over one million people went through the turnstiles to attend the races. So as an advocate for thoroughbreds and as someone who was formerly deeply involved in the industry as an owner and a breeder, I exercised racehorses for many years. I can tell you, it is not a matter of money. It's a matter of morality. And it's a matter of choices that we make and how we consider these horses. And right now, In my opinion, as a former industry participant, the industry, even though it really brings forth to the public how much it cares about its athletes and the welfare of those horses, I think the industry should be ashamed of how little they've actually done for the horses who have done so much to create a multi-billion dollar industry across this country. You know, each year, about 20,000 new thoroughbreds are born. That's what the Jockey Club records. So in every year that we have 20,000 new foals, we're actually creating 600,000 years of aftercare. 600,000 years that those horses need to be paid for. And when you think of it in those numbers and the context of those numbers, you know, it's estimated that 20% of the horses who go to slaughter are thoroughbreds. There's approximately 100,000 horses each year go into Canada and Mexico. So you're looking at about 20,000 thoroughbreds each year, the same amount that are produced each year, actually uh, going to be slaughtered for human consumption and for distribution back into consumer products with the other parts of their being that are not eaten for meat. Um, So because of thoroughbred, is purposefully bred. You know, nobody needs to own a racehorse. It's a privilege, it's a joy, it's it's a phenomenal wonder to be able to work with a horse in any competitive endeavor and condition that horse and build a relationship. I, I advocate from the point that this should be a privilege. And what does it say about us as a people who are knowingly bringing these horses into this world without first solving the aftercare issue, without solving the responsibility of paying for the natural lifespan of these horses. When $705 million is brought in just in one little meet, now granted there's billions, I believe it's about $11 billion a year is actually wagered on horse racing in the United States. Take a percentage of that and do what is ethically and morally the right thing for those horses which is solve the aftercare problem first bring the numbers to a sustainable number that are coming into this world there's no reason to breed horses who are physically not prepared to withstand the demands of racing simply because you have a tax write-off federally or you have an incentive program in new york state what that has done is lower the quality of the horses that are coming into the sport of horse racing why not breed fewer stronger horses and create sustainable futures for them because you know what the money is there to be able to do that but my question is is the morality and if it's not what does that say about the people as a whole in the racing community and again, I know people who do make the right choices with their horses. They wait to race them when they're older. They retire them when their years of service are done. So it's a very, very convoluted issue in that the whole, the whole of racing really has a black eye and a black cloud over it right now. And you know what? As it should, because it needs to get cleaned up. It needs to be, we need to address aftercare first. Before another horse is bred, take care of the ones that are already here. Out of that 705 million, take 5% and put it to take care of your existing horses and then distribute the rest for purse money. So I come at advocacy for thoroughbreds through a little bit of a different approach simply because I was very entrenched in that industry for very many years. And I do still have friends who are in it who are proactively trying to make changes. So it's, there's a lot on the table concerning it, but there's no reason to drug a lame horse to race, and there's no reason to send a horse to slaughter. That, to me, is indefensible. I agree. You know, I think that
2: certainly the racing industry has to look at its culture but generally all the horse world. I think in the last rodeo in Canada, uh, out west, six horses were killed during the the, the the rodeo, six, not one, not two, six inch six horses.
0: You, so you're saying rodeo, because that was, yeah. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah, I was so hearing with, audio at first.
2: My French, with my French accent. Yes, don't, <laughs> yes, so the rodeo, <laughs> yeah. right. You know, in, I don't know what the law, how the law is in the United States, but here in the province of Quebec, where I live, the law was changed at the end of 2015. But before that, horses were, this, the legal status of horses was the same as a chair or a toaster. They were a thing people owned. So in, at the end of 2015, they changed the legal status of animals, actually, in general, not just horses, uh, to recognize that they were sensitive being with biological needs, which was a huge step. And so they also, of course, increased the fines and the penalties if you did not respect this, the fact that it is a sensitive being with biological needs. But I wonder, do you know, Susan, what the legal status of horses are in the States? Are they a thing or are they a living being?
1: In the United States, horses are (laughs) considered personal property. They're really not much different than an object, Mm -hmm. and they are (laughs) legally classified as livestock. So horses do not have the protections under the law that companion animals such as cats and dogs do. Mm -hmm. That makes it very difficult to advocate for them to assert certain protections that, again, the general public does believe that they should have as companion animals. And in in the States, you know, for the most part, we're not a country who eats horse meat. And when you get into the, the slaughter argument as to why we do or don't have slaughter plants at a given time in the United States, currently we do not because the USDA inspectors for slaughter plants have been defunded. So there's no money to have inspectors in place to make sure that the rules and regulations and protocols of how to slaughter a horse are being met but what is even more challenging is you know in the united states there are 379 drugs that are allowed in the regular course of care and treatment of horses that are banned for human consumption and they're banned in the human food chain yet horses are leaving the United States even if even if one is not approaching horse slaughter with a moral argument as to that's my advocacy you know we shouldn't slaughter horses because they're not they're our friends they are companions but horses are not bred raised or regulated as food animals such as cows cattle or pigs or chickens so we have Horses, equine, classified as livestock, not raised, regulated for human consumption, going across into Canada and Mexico with 379 drugs that are illegal for human consumption in their flesh that are being butchered and processed for human consumption. And to my knowledge, in Canada, when a horse is processed in Canada, even if they come from the United States, They are then labeled as a product of Canada when they are shipped overseas. We also have had word that horses going to Canada, even though they are supposed to have a six-month moratorium when they ship in from Canada, we have Animal Angels, which is a wonderful organization in the United States, has followed tractor-trailers from slaughter auctions, over the border and these horses unload directly into the slaughter plant so we know they're not being housed inside the slaughter plant for six months those of us with a learned eye towards horses can clearly see these are race horses they're fit they're tucked up you know you can practically see the aluminum racing plates on them we're aware of these issues laws exist for certain protections but nothing is being enforced I saw on your website
2: that um, there are some people who are actually advertising adoption op- options, you know, that they will place horses in families, but they're actually uh, sending and selling these horses to slaughterhouse. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit just so that people are aware?
1: Oh, I certainly can. You know, it's so important with anybody being involved in, uh, in supporting equine endeavors or trying to be of assistance philanthropically to be the change that we want to see to create kinder outcomes for horses to do their due diligence. <laughs> because there is so little regulation in the field of horses and oversight with regard to what happens to horses and where they go, pretty much anybody can come on to social media, create a page and start fundraising for slaughter-bound horses. And it has really become a cottage industry in the United States. And from my own perspective, it's not the actual Contracted kill buyer, who is the problem in helping horses to find better outcomes? It's actually people who have become brokers for the kill buyers or self-appointed brokers, and they're fundraising on behalf of horses who are with contracted kill buyers. Do
0: Do you mean Do you mean that that there that I would be reading on Facebook? oh, there's this wonderful mayor who's who's half starved and we want to rescue her and send us $10, $20 to help buy her from the kill buyers. And you send in your $20, but actually they're just pocketing the money and sending the horse to slaughter?
1: That is something behind the scenes I am very experienced with. I have witnessed, documented it. And part of it is you have a very wonderful and well-meaning public who genuinely is interested in saving horses. And what they don't know is there's a whole bunch of scam artists out there, right? The, The contracted kill buyer is the contracted kill buyer. If you cut off the supply chain for that kill buyer, he or she is gonna start flipping hay bales, flipping automobiles, selling something else that they're trading in that's their business. Their business would not exist if horses were not overbred and if owners and breeders and those who use horses in any capacity were responsible for the lives of those horses and valued those horses as sentient beings as opposed to a commodity to use and then throw away when they're no longer of service. So the the issue we have which is completely unregulated and right now in a free for all on Facebook is what is commonly referred to in the vernacular as "broker babes," meaning you know cowboy girls that go on in their boots and jeans and hop on a horse and say this horse has five days to live before he or she is going to the you know across the border. There's no accountability for the amount of money that's raised for those horses, and there is no follow-up on those horses. One of the things that I do with Unbridled in every endeavor. I seek to raise the bar to level up the equine community, especially the rescue community. Last year in 2018, we publicly fundraised on the Facebook platform for, I think it was about 20 horses who were coming from kill pens and kill buyers. And to this day and every month forward until those horses meet a natural end of life or are euthanized, people who have donated to Unbridled they know where those horses are, who those horses are with, what is the current status of that horse, and what the future plans are for that horse. So we really try to educate donors, not only to Unbridled, but whomever you're donating to. Understand, You know what, it, what is the ethos of that organization? Are they going to track those horses for the rest of their life at Unbridled? We, our organization does transfer ownership eventually when appropriate for a horse. We're happy to see horses engaged in sports and activities that are not abusive or detrimental to them. And we want to be the organization that if something goes awry in in the person's life who initially adopted them or subsequent adopters, that they know that we're here to take that horse back. We're here to help if there's a catastrophic injury and that horse needs to be euthanized. You know, there's just common sense practices that we mix with morality and ethics that we're really proud of. And really encourage people who want to um, contribute to make change that they do that due diligence with other organizations. You know, because it's the public who, who gives money or withholds money that really is in the driver's seat to make a difference. But most of the time when it comes to horses, they don't even know what to ask for. You know, they right, love, they love right. Black Beauty, the Black Stallion, the beautiful horses at Saratoga, but they're not aware of a lot of the stuff on the inside that's really exploitive to horses, even in the rescue community. And that's where, you know, it's not a popular topic, but I put myself out there and speak about it all of the time because our horses deserve more and they deserve better for all that they do for us.
0: That's absolutely right. So in, in clicker training, We, certainly we look at what a training problem is, what it is that we're being confronted with in a horse's behavior. But then we learn very quickly to shift to what is it that we want. So instead of looking at the unwanted behavior, we focus very much on what is it that we want what is it that we want to create so if somebody has a horse who is being very pushy who's crowding into their space and they say to me oh i don't want my horse crowding into me i would say well great but what do you want well i don't want him stepping on my toes well great what do you want and and initially it can be hard for people to understand and 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 pivot to that oh, well, what I'd like him to be able to do is stand two feet away from my shoulder with his head evenly between his own shoulders and his mouth closed and his feet four on the floor, et cetera, et cetera. And as soon as they pivot to that, then you have a training plan because then you can say, oh, well, we can teach your horse how to step over away from you. We can teach him how to stand still. As soon as you focus on what you want, You can come up with solutions. So with that sort of a conceptual background, what's the solution that we want to focus on? How do we pivot away from what is heartbreakingly sad when you think about all of these healthy and often young, young horses going to slaughter? Just heartbreaking. How do we pivot from that to what would be the solution that you would love to see. What a great cliffhanger. What is the solution? Of course, I'm gonna make you wait until next week to hear Susan's answer. It's an important question. The statistics she's citing are so saddening. It can seem almost impossible to make any meaningful change for the better, but that's not an answer I want to hear that there is no hope for these horses. So how can those of us who deeply love horses, how can we become part of the engine for change? As Susan puts it, those of us who get what she means when she talks about the who-ness of horses, not just what horses can do for us in terms of riding and competition, but who they are as individuals with rich emotional lives. What can we do to make a difference? We'll head towards hope and away from despair in the second part of this conversation. But I'll leave you with a little sneak preview of what I think part of the answer is. I'm sure it's not going to be a surprise when I tell you that it's clicker training. When you clicker train, you see the horse and really any animal you're working with as an individual. You experience their intelligence. You experience their personality. I get so many emails from people who are trying clicker training for the first time that begin with, my horse is so smart. (laughs) It's always in caps. It's usually underlined and it has lots of exclamation points following. Change the way you see a horse and you change the outcome for the horse. Which brings me to a fun announcement. The new edition of my book, The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, is at the printers. Finally, it's been a year-long project revising the book. So it's going to be available in just a couple of weeks. This is essentially a brand new book. The format is the same as the original, but I've updated the entire text. So the click that teaches a step-by-step guide in pictures, it was originally printed in 2003. It's gone through a number of reprints, and it was just time to revisit the text and add some more. So that's what I've done, and it's going to be available in really just a couple of weeks. So as soon as it is, I'll let you know it should be ready to ship sometime in November of 2019 so next week we'll have part 2 of susan kane's interview and then, have fun with your horses